people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. Welcome back. We're thrilled to be here with Spencer Sunshine, who everyone should know um, has written a great book called Forty Ways to Fight Fascists, uh, which is you know excellent and does. Live, you know, lives up to the title. Lots of books, you know, they give you a title. There are definitely 40 ways in that book to fight fascists, but let's start a bit more kind of personal. Let's start a bit more kind of biographical. Just tell us, Spencer, like what is your kind of personal history with anti-fascism? You've been involved with it for a, a really long time. Um, just tell us some key highlights, I guess, of that personal history. Yeah, I have a bit of a different background than, than a lot of people, although there are other people like me. I was originally, I got involved in the punk scene and I lived in a small town in the United States in, in Georgia uh, in the late 80s. At the time, they were very young. It was not common for people to be very young and involved. Um, and it was at the time that uh, the area I grew up was one of the centers of the Nazi skinhead explosion. So I was like in high school in 1988, which was the year it really took off in the United States. It was a little later than in Britain. So I ended up going to school with a bunch of Nazi skinheads and my town had been a town that was a, um, a frequent site of Ku Klux Klan rallies. And Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler had actually been shot there. He's in a wheelchair because he had been shot by a neo-Nazi sniper in that town. Um, and so I became in conflict with them. Um, the Nazis were sort of running the punk scene at the time. You'd go to shows and it'd be like a thousand people because it, it was before Nirvana and all this stuff became um, commercialized and popular, there'd be a thousand people at the show and there'd be like 50 roided up skinheads intimidating everybody. Um, so I quickly got into conflict with them. My family's, you know, partly Jewish. I had a black girlfriend. This didn't, you know, bode well for social relations. I ended up uh, meeting up with some adults who were running an anti-Klan, anti-Nazi monitoring group. They also did like legal grassroots uh, counter-organizing. They had mostly from pretty radical left backgrounds. Uh, an ex-Zippy, uh, anarcho-syndicalist, an Irish nationalist, and an ex-Marxist-Leninist like, party member. Um, and through them, they introduced me to some other, other people in the, who come out of the punk scene who were teenagers and um, had contacted them. And we formed a, a, essentially an anti-Nazi group inside the punk scene. I think I was 16 then to do sort of, we mostly did counter-propaganda, but we were the only group in this large punk scene to be speaking out against, you know, the, 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 the dominance of, you know, neo-Nazis, the political dominance of neo-Nazis. It wasn't a terribly political scene, but the Nazis were the only organized faction. Um, and, I, and I got into radical politics through that and sort of um, came back to it in the mid O's um, through two things. One was a sort of, um, um, uh, we were running into people in the, kind of mid-period anti-globalization scene who are getting more and more into anti-Semitism, you know, as part of their Palestine solidarity stuff. And as we objected to it, they would dig down on it. And we were like, this is not right. You know, this, what you're saying and doing is not right. And the other was that we started finding, um, or uh, fascists who were cross-recruiting, uh, the national anarchists who started in Britain by an ideologue named Troy Southgate, who was a, a veteran of the National Front in the 70s. And as they went through splits, he went through these splits with them and popped out with his own ideology, which was a sort of decentralized um, crypto fascism that then was trying to cross recruit from anarchists and radical ecologists and others. And they had a little bit of success. This had been it had dealt been dealt with sort of in Britain in 2000, 2001. But um, was popping back, it was, had migrated to the US and Australia and was popping up um, and became an issue here. So to those, through those two things, I got back into looking at the far right. I'd had this sort of background. And then when I finished school in 2013, I was asked to be a fellow at a think tank that did this work called Political Research Associates. And so I quit my job um, in mid 2015 to write a study of militias in, in Oregon, which was very prescient because about six months later there was an armed takeover by militias of this uh, wildlife refuge by the Bundy family in January 2016. And so I was sort of already off and running by the time Trump came to power. We had, The militia stuff was actually um, what we saw there and what we saw with the weird crypto fascist stuff and the cross recruiting was uh, this um, rise of the far right, we were just seeing its impacts in different, like now I'd say, oh, this was a, 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 almost a global, especially in the US, but part of a global rise in 
the how large the far right was and it was starting to impact different areas right impact the, the ones who are cross recruiting and impact the militias and stuff but it was all part of one thing um and so then you know i was a i was sort of front and center when the the trump was elected i literally was had flown that day i'd flown back from germany i'd done a speaking tour about the u.s right and i was flying back the day of the election you know i was like oh trump will lose and we'll see what all these people do but i was like okay well and the last four years have been one you know long marathon that's really great what's like i'm interesting about all those different um different forms of um, engagement with anti-fascism that you mentioned is they always seem to take place maybe not, maybe not always they often seem to take place in the context of some other cultural space right so they take place in the context of the punk scene you mentioned um the national um fascist oh sorry the uh, national anarchist what's it called national yes. anarchist sorry the, the national anarchist kind of um there's there's a great uh blog called who's who in the national anarchist zoo which i don't i can't verify the information on but i think it's a great title for a blog um and so they mentioned there's a kind of a, a cross um pollination there with like um radical uh, ecology and um sort of i guess what people might describe now as kind of eco-fascist um ideas and then there's of course like the militia movement is in some ways like a different kind of cultural space right it's a contested space about like what is the american west in particular and these kind of like things like this so i'm wondering like do you think it was important for sustaining a kind of anti-fascism through that, that it was always attached to some other thing that you were trying to um, defend? Because I'm, I'm kind of, I'm thinking about this, this now because it seems like there are lots of people who have become or, or decided to use the identity of being an anti-fascist kind of on its own, like a neat anti-fascism without some sort of mixer. Um, so to, you know, I think that, that seems like a fundamentally different kind of political movement to say that we are defending punk against fascism yeah. or we are defending our particular community against fascism or we are defending this to say that we are against fascism and that is the limit of our politics. Yeah. It always seems like it, it somehow doesn't have the same richness to it. But I, I mean, maybe, I don't know, is that something you've kind of noticed in your own like uh, history? Yeah, I hadn't thought of the, the punk and the communities the same way, but for sure, especially in the old days, there was a lot of, and this is sort of faded um, fight over uh, milieus being contested terrain and the fights over that where people were participants in them. So people who were in the punk scene or, or who were skinheads or, and you see this now in some niche things like in heathenry um, and other places and, and to some extent radical ecology where people are fighting within their own politics or their own milieu for, for control over it or against you know, cross recruiting. The militia stuff's a little different because it was happening in rural communities, but it wasn't It wasn't like the self-selected milieu. It was geographically defined. They acted more like a generic political movement, but, you know, I was working with, I mean, I was more just like producing research, but, you know, in close contact with a group called the Rural Organizing Project, and they were for sure trying to mobilize people in these rural areas to push back against the militia um, recruiting and activism and organizations. So that was like a bigger level contested terrain. Now, yeah, what's happened with the anti-fascist movement in the U.S. is it's been, um, you know, become a popular movement on the left. It's much different than it was in the 80s and 90s, because then it was really still pretty niche to the counterculture stuff. Um, yeah, I remember, I think in 2018, the first time I met someone who was just like, I'm an anti-fascist, like they had encountered it like a, a preset identity. And they were like, I'm an anti-fascist, so I dress this way and I do these things. And I was just like, well, that's really weird. Like, cause it had been this very loose and kind of more, I think more interesting thing. And I hadn't like, it wasn't like I'm an anti-fascist, so it means X. We were like, we come from different backgrounds and we're trying to, you know, um, conceptualized because there's a lot of strange stuff going on like we were running to latino neo-nazi skinheads here in new york it was some of this stuff which presaged these multiracial far right groups like the proud boys um and we're trying to understand it we're trying to figure out what tactics we could use to combat it so it was weird when it became its own sort of identity or its own like concrete thing on the left you saw the politics shift significantly where they just became whatever other politics that were on the left, um, filling it in with generic left-wing politics, which were sometimes quite to the opposite of the politics we held. And sometimes if you ask me, don't, um, don't work well with anti-fascism. Um, 
you know, various kinds of racial nationalism, like nationalism, the oppressed racial nationalism has never fit very well with anti-fascism, but it's so dominant on the left in the United States, at least it just comes in, people just adopt whatever else is there and, and sort of ram it in without looking and seeing if that's um, in contradiction or thinking, thinking through what anti-fascism might mean in terms of, I mean, it shouldn't have an uh, other ideology, but what it might mean in a reflection on their own politics. For some of us, it was a reflection on our own politics and what those things meant. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I, I agree with you. It's, it, there's not much, there's not much sense left that there's fight over contested spaces. I mean, there's fights over platforms, but it's no longer people really recruiting and trying to recruit from a space that you are, it's very much, here's the right and here's the left. And yes, sometimes people go over from one to the other, but there's not a fight over control of, of, a, of a smaller, well-defined area, whether it's geographical or cultural. I kind of wonder how um, how this kind of like Antifa versus like uh, Trump supporters, Antifa versus Proud Boys, this kind of right versus left thing is developed over the Trump presidency. And it seems like Antifa as like a, a bugbear of the right has, has like um, really come into its own in, in, in Trump land. I wondered um, what's your take on his leaving the presidency do you where do you think this kind of conception of antifa goes from here do you think the republic this is still a useful kind of um boogeyman for the republican party yeah that's a good question i hadn't thought of that before um so yeah the antifa thing basically antifa became the old communists and in fact some of the people who created the conspiracy theory did it it was like communist 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 antifa antifa you know where communists are this like thing that's you know everywhere and everything and includes liberals and even moderate conservatives you know that the head of the john birch society i think in the late 50s early 60s said that eisenhower was a communist so like everything's a communist who's not on the far right basically um you know that idea has you know become adopted throughout the united states um you know conservatives including by the the now um gone president and many in congress who are still in congress so we'll see how useful that is as a bugbear going forward. It'll certainly continue for a while. Some of this, because it's been so disattached from the actual Antifa movement itself, it could continue on. I mean, they're like, Nancy Pelosi's a communist and Joe Biden's a communist. So they could, I mean, not Antifa. So they could keep, they could keep this on totally disattached. So there's like some string of um, relationship to reality still, right? There is an Antifa movement. There are there are, uh, you know, clashes on the street. So it could become totally disattached from it and continue. Um, some of this, I think, will really con be contingent on whether there continues to be a militant street far-right movement, you know, whether the, the Trumpists, I call them at the beginning of the thing, independent Trumpists, they were pretty disattached from the GOP, Proud Boys and other people doing street actions. They kind of got more attached and they're gonna become disattached again. So if the independent Trumpists are able to keep up a militant street movement, then the clashes with Antifa will continue and then the conspiracy theory will, will continue for sure. Um, but that's going to be predicated on, on, on if they're able to do that, you know, they may just become totally disillusioned um, by Trump leaving. Some of that will depend on if Trump tries to remain a political figure or his children try to take his mantle up. I think Don Jr. is in a good position to do that. You know, will Trump want to do these, you know, speaking engagements across the U.S. with diminishing crowds? Like, I don't know, maybe his wife's going to be like, you know, enough. <laughs> you had your you had your thing. You never liked it, clearly. Right. Let's just go golf for, for the next 10 years. So, I mean, I think it depends. It's, it's a good question. I hadn't thought of it, actually. Um, uh, possibly for a while. Yes. The long term thing is it 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 depends if it really if they if the conservatives can keep reworking it in some way, if it keeps uh, intellectual hold on the base, and if the, the, the independent Trump has continue, the clashes will continue, and then, then it for sure will continue. So you, uh, you've, got, you've had this new edition of this scene come out, 40 Way to Fight Fascists, and it, you, um, it came out a few months ago, and I'm doing the interview now. Um, it seems to be very much in a trend of like expanding like, um, what counts as anti-fascism. Um, beyond what people traditionally think of as anti-fascism. And I wonder how, how, how important you, you think that was. I mean, obviously, you've found 40 different ways of making it important, obviously. Um, so you obviously think it's important, but uh, why is it that um, we need to expand 
uh, our kind of uh, conception of what uh, antifascism is. There's actually 41, and then I thought of another one. So there really should be 42, but it's 40 <laughs> and then a bonus, bonus round because 41 ways to fight fascism wasn't so, didn't, didn't roll off the tongue so well. Um, so it came out of, the original edition was in 2018, and it came out of a very concrete organizing problem we had here in the United States is that the anti-fascist movement was, could not mobilize enough people in the streets, period. Like I was at Charlottesville and we didn't have enough people at Charlottesville and we didn't have enough people because the larger, it was only mobilized by local groups in Charlottesville uh, and Antifa groups. And we could see that was the limit of how many people could be pulled to a demonstration, which was like 500 to a thousand without having more, more moderate groups, um, national groups, nonprofits, NGOs, et cetera, um, get involved. And what's happened really over the last four years is none of those groups have become involved in the grassroots level. You know, people create documentation and there's these anti-extremist organizations and there's lawsuits and, you know, I mean, I think this is all good stuff, but none of these groups that have a tremendous amount of money and pull and followers um, have, called their follow have called their base to engage in grassroots work against the far right, whatever you call it, I don't care. If you read the guide, you'll notice that the word anti-fascism never or antifa never occurs in it. I don't care what people call what they're doing. Um, some of this is that the Antifa thing has just become too associated with violence and that in itself turns people off who, you know, just they're not interested in violent conflicts. And um, it just creates a negative reaction in a way it shouldn't, but it does. And so I wanted them to think that they can do this work anyway. Most people do Antifa work, don't do the, the you know, the street conflicts anyway. It's really, it's not most of the work and it's not even most of the people. But that ruins the whole idea of it for a certain group of people. So I wanted to make it palatable to people without having to explain what Antifa was or go around and do this dance. Um, so I just wanted more people. We needed more people to get involved in this stuff. We still need more people to get involved in this stuff. People who aren't necessarily, who aren't going to adopt this identity as an Antifa activist, who aren't already part of the radical left, who maybe aren't even interested in these other parts of the radical left. Um, who are older, some of this were people who um, are homebound because of age or disability or health status or, you know, families or whatever. Um, so it was part of a real attempt to um, engage a broader group of people into doing this work because we really have needed a broader group of people this whole time. The problem with the street, the far right street activism could have been resolved in 2017, had a broader group of progressives mobilized people to turn out, especially when the movement was smaller. I mean, you weren't getting 500 Proud Boys and militias in tack gear with guns showing up and ready to really rumble in 2017. It wasn't happening, you know. The Heather Hare who died in Charlottesville was such a, you know, became an iconic thing because at the time you didn't have one person die at a demonstration. Now people shrug their shoulders if, you know, people get shot and murdered at demonstrations and people are like, oh yeah, that happened again, right? So this could have been shut down at the very beginning, but there just wasn't the political will outside of the radical left to do it. And so the whole project of the, of the guide is to attempt to get more people involved and mobilize more people. And I kind of think it's, it's interesting. It's happening for the first time in the aftermath of the Capitol takeover where lots of really liberals are getting involved in um, you know, open source uh, intelligence gathering and identifying people who, who went to it and really doxing them. Now, a lot of them are turning them over to the FBI, which isn't my politics, but um, but they're doing the same work that Antifa people have done, and they're doing it willingly, and they're self-motivated to do it. So that's actually a new thing here, and I think a good, overall, a good a development. I wonder how important size is, uh, in particularly in counter-demonstrations. You mentioned it a couple of times, because I'm thinking about in the UK context, size is absolutely essential, right? You need... Uh, to have like twice as many people uh, against a far right group in the UK, and I guess that's for a couple of reasons. Um, and I, I guess that there are a couple of, reasons, a couple of ways in which, in which it might be different between the UK and the US. First is that we don't have any guns, um, right? So like, there's no force multiplier uh, in the UK. Um, Five hundred people uh, in a far right organization will lose to two thousand people in an anti-fascist organization. Like, just, just it will. They, they will lose, right? Um, regardless of how kind of individually tough they are. And yeah, uh, essentially it, the only changing factor is there is how disciplined the anti-fascists are. 
Um, that's obviously not the case in America, right? Like one person with a with a gun uh, beats two thousand people without a gun. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm kind of guessing like how much do you think that that kind of size is really important? And the other thing is it's important uh, in the kind of difference between the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, at least is that um, at least the, in the process I've seen from the U.S. kind of footage of is that in the U.K. Um, at least in London, in central London, where most far right activism takes place the police as an organization completely dominate the streets. They determine who goes where at what time. It's very rare, although it does happen occasionally, that anti-fascists or the far right manage to break out of these, these essentially state-sanctioned cordons. Um, so how, how much is that like size uh, really the kind of a key factor there? Or are there, are there other kind of strategic or tactical factors that, that determine the success of particularly counter-demonstrations in the US context? Yeah, the things in the U.S. have changed significantly. I mean, it, from my understanding, like in Britain and Germany and other places, the, the anti-fascist politics are going the same and the, the whole dynamic has gone the same as it's gone for many years. And here they totally switched because of what the because of what was new under Trump, that there was a multiracial far right groups that were behaving in the streets like Nazis, but their politics were significantly more moderate than them. But the people doing anti-fascist anti work didn't recognize this was a change. So basically, you know, before Trump, stuff rolled out like it does in Europe. There were, um, uh, I, I mean, I, I think, I don't know how, quite how the right-wing populists are dealt with. But here, um, you know, there would be Nazis or Klansmen. You could have a counter-demonstration. There could be a militant core. And you could mobilize a lot of people to come. You could, it, it wasn't hard if you did, you know, did some work and outreach to outnumber them three to one, four to one, five to one, 10 to one, 20 to one, right? You could do this because the enemy were, were fash. I mean, they were full fast, right? Some would say full fast and half fash, um, but we used to. So the problem is here is that the, the anti-fascists didn't change their strategy, but it, the context of it changed and the opponent changed. You know, the Trumpists, and this isn't really recognized by a lot of groups, um, weren't full, most of these new groups weren't full fash, other than Charlottesville. That was a case of that. You know, these groups are multiracial. They're not calling for a white ethno state. There's no open anti-Semitism, you know. And the problem is a lot of people on the left use these other sort of left analyses and they're like, well, this is just white supremacy and I don't care about the details. And I mean, that's fine for your critique, but that's, that doesn't work when you're mobilizing people to your side. If the people aren't full fash, these, this ability to pull out that hundreds and thousands of people doesn't happen because we've seen it not happen. Um, and, it, it, and so this has made um, the numbers, this has made basically the only people you can pull out are already radical leftists with a smattering of other people, like maybe in Portland where this has truly become, anti-fascism has truly become a mass movement there amongst the city you can pull out some more people. But generally you're only pulling out, you know, hardcore people. And as the far right stuff, I mean, they're basically equivalent to right-wing populists in Europe, you know? And so as, as their base has expanded and the ability of anti-fascists to pull sympathetic people has declined, most of the clashes have ended up in general with equal numbers. Um, and in the, the second thing is in the past, the police very aggressively would separate people incredibly aggressively. And then as Trump came in, they just stopped. This actually happened beforehand. We saw it in 2016. They just stopped doing it. They would just stand back for a couple, first couple of years. They would just stand back. This is what happened at Charlottesville. They just stood a block away. I mean, they just didn't intervene. And then like in Portland where they had to intervene and there were some cases they didn't intervene at first, they would really favor, they weren't trying to separate everyone and see them both as, um, you know, uh, uh, extremists they wanted to get rid of. They were clearly favoring the far right. I mean, not all the way, but there would be, you know, they would tend to be harder on the left and tend to be softer on the right. They wouldn't arrest right-wing figures who had warrants out for them. It was just very obvious, you know, someone would wave a gun around and they wouldn't arrest them. So it wasn't like they just, you know, cleared out and gave them full reign, but they were clearly, you know, there was clearly a, 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 a bias in the policing, a very clear one. And so these two things together, um, the failure of police to treat both sides equally and the um, inability of the anti-fascists to mobilize um, people because of, in my opinion, their inability to understand that there was a significant difference between full fash and these right-wing multiracial right-wing populist movements has created this situation. 
And again, it was one reason I wrote the guide is I really trying to mobilize another layer of people to do something, you know, whatever it was they were doing. And if nothing else, to take the pressure off of Milton anti-fascists from doing this work, from doing the research, from doing, um, you know, support work for prisoners and people hurt, you know, that it would give people more, more um, bandwidth to do work. That was I, I had, important very early on. I had a question about um, looking after ourselves and looking after each other. Um, you, you, you said you were at Charlottesville. And I, I mean, I, I, I've been in big kind of anti-fascist demonstrations before and they were very stressful. I imagine if I was in Charlottesville, I would be extremely stressed out, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, how can we, and, and even like the non-demonstration street work, uh, non-street kind of activism, the reading a lot of far-right literature, I find quite anxiety-inducing just because it's racist and anti-Semitic and horrendously misogynistic or whatever. So I wondered, how do you kind of, do you, how do you look after yourself when you're reading this stuff and doing anti-fascism? And how do you think we as anti-fascists can better look after each other as well? Well, my answer probably isn't going to be very illuminating. I, 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 when I first started reading it, you know, it was disturbing. But at this point, it's just uh, I'm, I'm immune to it. I'm like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, now you're saying this. I have read all these things hundreds of times. I'm like, well, that's not a very good, you know, elucidation of that talking point. You're like, oh, you delivered that really well. Um, you know, yes, the Jews, you know, so that doesn't bother me anymore. Uh, I know it. I remember when I started, it did. And I'm, I'm sure it does that to other people. Um, and here we don't really, the street clashes on the East Coast have, have dried up. Um, so it's really uh, a few cities on the West Coast. Um, and, you know, I don't know. Um, it's, you know, I don't know what people are doing out there. It's probably good to have a, a structured network of how to take care of people if they're physically injured or traumatized, you know, have, have um, you know, medical care available, have, you know, people to follow up with them and see whatever their needs are. Cause people always have different needs after these things, you know, um, there can be all kinds of different things. It's not just one thing, um, you know, and have some structured way to take care of people who are hurt in this work. But I, I can't really speak to it cause it's not really a live issue here so much. It was after Charlottesville where a lot of people were hurt and we couldn't get any, you know, people were losing their jobs and all this money had been collected and they were, if you know this, like a million dollars had been collected and they, by DSA and they refused to release any of it, you know? And then we were like, people were like losing their jobs because they were hurt so bad in Charlottesville and they were getting evicted. It was really crazy. So, but that moment here has passed. So I can't, I, I can't, because we don't have all these injuries and stuff and the big, big clashes here, it, the other people on the West Coast would have to speak to that. We're a big country, you know, people in Europe forget it's like the size of Europe, right? Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of interested about this like East Coast, West Coast dynamic. I, I tried to uh, suggest something to a previous interview we had uh, with Alexandra Mina Stone, who wrote a book called The Proud Boys and the White Ethno State, um, which was that, 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 that there's, there's a fundamentally different kind of like fascism that exists on the inner two parts, right? There's like a, there's a kind of a foundational fascism, like a, a founder fascism that exists in the, in the East Coast. And there's kind of the um, manifest destiny fascism that exists in the, the West Coast. I don't know if that's at all compelling as like a, a, a reading of the distinction between these two things. But do you see that there are distinctions between the forms of far right groups that exist on the East and the West Coast of America? No, I think they're generally the same. The West Coast, because I used to live on the West Coast, is just a lot more open. It's not as populated. And there's something that's gotten in. You just have more, there's more room for radical movements on both the left and right. Like Oregon, you know, I lived in the 90s. And at the time, there was like an anarchist movement with thousands of people. I mean, it was really kind of bizarre. And Oregon especially is, uh, Portland is just not very well policed and not very well controlled. The police are very violent, but they're, it's actually a very small police department. And there's just the city doesn't control everything. So it, it creates a space where all kinds of wild things can flourish and those can be good and bad. Um, similarly, uh, there's just a similar kind of feeling out West. There's a, just for whatever reason, a feeling of real openness and that can go in good ways and bad ways. And, you know, we've seen over and over various kinds of, of radical, you know, cultural and political movements have emerged from the U.S. West Coast. So um, the actual ideological things are about the same. I, I don't think that there's a real difference. There's just, um, there's more space for conflict and it's just less policed in a way. You talk about these kind of multiracial 
groups. I'm guessing that, that that could be a description of the Proud Boys, but it could also, like, in the same way, be a description of things like um, maybe even some of the kind of the militia movements or the, even the Boogaloo Boys, which, right, which were, I don't think, I mean, there were, there were definitely some groups inside that were, that were expressly white nationalist, um, but it was, it was seen uh, in some ways like intellectually unclear or acad- like ideologically unclear, but it could also refer to things like QAnon, right, um, which is um, vastly more heterogeneous than any kind of uh, normal white nationalist group or, or so on. I'm kind of wondering, like, wh- where do you see these things going in the next, uh, in under the Biden presidency? Um, yeah, I guess, like, wh- where do you see these things moving now? Do you think there's going to be hybridization? Are they going to split off into their own kind of little silos? What's going to happen? Well, I talked about this a bit before. I'm not, it's really going to depend on what Trump does. It's going to depend on if they, if they're able to find a new um, sort of issue or tactic to glob onto. I mean, these street confrontations are kind of a new thing for the U.S., far right like it generally wasn't a street movement that sort of started maybe with a tea party and they had stationary rallies so even these conflicts have been a way for the new way for them to organize and attract new people there's like excitement in it it's something you can just jump into and do um and it's a live issue and if they don't you know and just supporting trump was a live issue and they're going to need to find another issue to keep going or it's going to start to sputter out um i agree there's going to be more factionalization trump has been a great unifier for them. This has been definitely one of their absolute strengths because the far right in the US has always been uh, marked by a lot of sectarian infighting, a lot of squabbling, a lot of grifting more than the left. Um, And perhaps we just have it structured more in NGOs or something and they just have figures who are trying to steal from each other, but I don't know. and without that unifying figure, it is, it, it must fall apart more and more. The Proud Boys are going to sort of splinter. I mean, their movement's also going to splinter as, you know, the conflicts with the police have, have, they become more radical and the conflicts with the police have increased this more radical wing of the, of both the Proud Boys and the larger Trumpist movement are going to get and are already in conflict with the more moderate members of the movement. I mean, the more radical people, they're, you know, at the, at the Capitol takeover, we're, you know, yelling to hang the Vice President Pence. I mean, this is going to, you know, before these movements have been, you know, buoyed by their um, association with the GOP, with the Republican Party, right? They're, the, they're the, the street activists of it. And now, you know, they're coming into conflict with it. So that's going to create more schisms, but that will also bring more people directly into the new Nazi movement or, you um, encourage them to work directly with these more radical things. Cause a lot of the fascists have abandoned the whole Trump thing. They're just like, Oh, Trump's sure. yeah. sell out. He's surrounded by Jews. You know, he's clearly not serious about the racism thing, you know, and they, they've got his number, right. You know, he's not serious. It's just some words to attract his base and he's fine with demonizing people of color, but he's not like an ideological white nationalist, which many of them had convinced themselves that he was at the very beginning. And, you know, they actually see, they see more clearly than I think the rest of the Trumpists do what's really going on. For sure, yeah. I, I mean, like that, that's a, I, I guess I'm kind of wondering about this split within within the Proud Boys, how significant it is in the context of a kind of post-2018 split already between people who decide to latch themselves onto Trump and kind of or even latch themselves onto the Republican Party, right? So Nick Fuentes and so on becomes this kind of like figure who's trying to radicalize Republican politics from within. Whereas you get people like Richard Spencer who, you know, say that's, that's, that's stupid. I'm going to go off and uh, do a very kind of uh, uh, badly produced podcast um, instead, which is uh, yeah, fair enough. I think that's the tactic he should be pursuing. Um, well, Fuentes is, I mean, people don't say this, he's doing a classic entryist move. You know, that's just what it for is. For sure. Yeah, yeah totally. Like when Milton yeah. went to the labor party and people are confused by it. I'm like, no, 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 no. You know, and he's rejecting there being an independent white nationalist movement. Spencer is continuing an independent white nationalist movement, but he, I don't know what his game plan is. He's waiting out this lawsuit, I think is why he's quiet. I think he's looking at the long term, which probably works for him, but it's not going to work for the movement. And then these other people who believe in an independent movement, they've washed their hands of Trump and they're hoping to inherit the bulk of the Proud Boys or something, or or they're the logical endpoint of the bulk of the Proud Boys. Although some of them will split off because the, the members who... I was the members are people of color whose girlfriends are people of color. I, I swear we've seen multiple instances in which people did not go over to white nationalism, and we figured out they were they were their wife or 
baby mom or girlfriend wasn't white. And even when they split up, then they became white nationalists. So whatever's holding some of them back, the ones that were held back will be held back. And the ones who don't have anything held back will float further towards white nationalism. There's also kind of conflict in the Proud Boys between anti-Semitism, right? And uh, the non-anti-Semitic part of that. That seems to be kind of one of the main dynamics there. Sorry, Alex, you had a a different question. No, I was just going to think, I think we're only just beginning to see the the impact of the the Capitol Hill riot on on the splintering as well. Like a lot of, like, you know, the, the FBI has been, you know, traditionally not particularly interested in the far right, but with a new administration coming in and this like very like obvious violation of like the norms of American life and the people's house has been violated, all that kind of stuff. I feel like we've already seen some Proud Boy leaders be arrested by the feds and I expect more charges to be brought in, you know, however long it is. And, you know, when those kind of leadership people get put in prison, then oftentimes we see fragmentation as well. So. Yeah, a lot of the, their leaders are going to be arrested. I mean, the FBI hasn't been interested in the Proud Boys. They did finally, after the El Paso, El Paso massacre in 2018, start to crack down, but they were looking at like Adam Waffen in the base and they have basically destroyed those networks. I mean, when the FBI wants to come after you, you know, it, it takes a minute for them to rev up, but game's over. Like they'll make up charges or, you know, they just have endless resources. You can't beat them. I mean, we've seen this in the, in the um, radical left over and over again. So yeah, now that they're focused on these, what the capital takeover was interesting because it's largely more moderate Trumpists who generally didn't have those aggressive tactics sprinkled in with members of you know militias, oath keepers. A number of them just got arrested, Proud Boys and others, um, and they're all you know, especially if they're known activists in these organizations, they're all going to go down, and this is going to be a big blow to them for sure. And you know, the FBI is happy to you know bend any rule of decency, and you know you know, help pursue with a, in, in hand with the prosecutors, help pursue the largest charges that they can. And this cannot help them as an organization. Yeah, whenever you talk about the FBI, you've got to refer people to the latest Chris Morris film, where basically fit up a bunch of vulnerable um, Muslim uh, young men and get them done on terrorism charges for basically saying that they maybe would be interested in blowing up something someday. But, you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not crying me a river over these guys being arrested, but there's no way the feds are going to treat them treat them fairly. That's just not how they act. Do you think that they the there might be kind of room for like a hybridization of various other kinds of like kind of moderate Trumpists? I mean, like moderate, but also conspiratorial in this kind of uh, deranged way. I mean, like, I think derangement is like a totally reasonable way of describing QAnon and so on. As QAnon deflates, but also like hardens in various other ways. Like, what, how do you see this kind of as hybridizing with the more like organizational far right, or do you think it think it's a totally separate tendency, and it'll just never they'll never really see eye to eye? Well, I mean, so there was a really big. This is something we were yelling about in 2014, 2015, is that there have become these very big new far right platforms to the right of like Fox News. Breitbart became the most famous of them. That had like millions of followers, and, and you know people outside of, you know, the right-wing watchers weren't paying any attention to this. And we're like, this is new how big these things are. This is a new space between white nationalism, you know, between the full fash and the regular GOP that's opened and is, I mean, it's always been there, but it's really expanded massively. So the QAnon people, I think are going to, like that space isn't, even if the Trumpist thing deflates, it's going to go back to that level of 2014, 2015, which was quite significant. You know, it's not going to decrease below that because they've just had a whole influx of new people being entering the far right. And even when they leave, it doesn't mean they're even they leave as a street activist doesn't mean their views change. And so I think people are going to. So there's this sort of mid mid way. I mean, right wing populist is is probably the equivalent in Europe, you know, very conspiratorial driven social media and and other platforms, media platforms that people are going to go back into they're flooded with they're based on conspiracy theories you know conspiracy theories are sort of like the way the left that uses marxism or some other kind of analytical theory they use conspiracy theories as their as their analysis Um, and i think those QAnon people will 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 move back into that thing i mean they generally don't do grassroots organizing you know they have had the opportunity to do street demonstrations and so they have but i think those are going to largely go away because the QAnon people as such aren't going to be like the Proud Boys and be based on wanting to get drunk again and fights. A few of them, sure. But, um, and so I think they're going to go back into that, 
things are going to recede to that level and that's going to be their sort of resting place. And then it's going to depend on if, you know, if there becomes, uh, I would say if there becomes a new party or new movement, but the U S political system, the two party system just locks out. I mean, even more so in Britain where it tends to also be two party, but there's enough wiggle room to have these third and fourth parties. And we just don't have that here. Um, and so, you know, and, unless there can be some way that these, um, right-wing populist movements can congeal politically. You know, it could be a big organization. They're, I'm sure people are going to try to start a third party and it's going to fail because they always do. You know, it might have legs for a moment, for a year or two, but then it will fail. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to see what form that they can take that's going to have um, some sort of steady, um, that's going to be a steady enough thing for a while. So I think- Do you not think that, back. sorry, do you not think that Trump might like form that kind of thing deliberately through um, becoming a kind of, I mean, this is an absurd comparison maybe, but like through almost becoming a kind of like Alex Jones too, right? Who's like not kind of conspiratorial in the kind of like, you know, the way that Alex Jones is, but nevertheless has that um, alternative reality culture um, that he just can, you know, he just like produced this kind of alternative reality. People, you know, millions of people perhaps um, believe that he is really legitimately the president and they just live in this other world. They don't necessarily have any kind of organized political form, but they, 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 they exist like fundamentally in a different reality. Well, sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, I don't know what he's going to do. There's all this talk about Trump TV or whatever, but that's not going to, I mean, yes, and they'll follow that media platform or whatever it is, but they won't take a political form. I mean, that's the question. You know, yes, the millions of people, I mean, 75 million or something, 70, 75 million, million people voted for Trump. Those people aren't going to, I mean, they're not all Trumpists, but they're not all going to go away. You know, so millions and millions and millions of people drank the Kool-Aid, but will they remain politically active versus passively consuming far-right media? Uh, that depends. Will they continue to passively consume far-right media and social media? Yes. I, I, yes. But but will they be able to turn that into a political form? That's another question. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's an uh, accurate assessment. Alex, do you have any final questions? I want to ask one more about this upcoming work you're doing on some really insane people. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> you know, like you, you, you think you and on, they're kind of, you know, they're kind of off the deep end, but there's, let me tell you, there's another pool and it's even deeper. Um, and it is- Okay, I do have a question. James right? Mason, but this is this is going so well, my intro to the question. <laughs> okay, you go for it, Alex. And then I'll, I'll do that whole thing again. That's you can edit it, you know? Yeah, yeah I can, yeah. <laughs> All right, so the, the kind of big Trump news, apart from him leaving the presidency, is obviously him banned from his most favourite of all websites, Twitter. And that has been come along with like a huge um, banning of a bunch of QAnon accounts and a bunch of other kind of Trump-associated accounts as well. And I wondered what, because there's, there's some stuff in the guide about the, the platforming people from uh, far-right activists and social media. And I wondered what your take was on this um, debate I've had with people and other anti-fascists have had about giving investing this the, the power of silencing not in like a kind of 1984 you know censoring kind of way but like literally just taking people out of the conversation um how how comfortable are you with that being invested in like uh jack from twitter or mark zuckerberg or do you know what i mean like these like giant media companies on one hand, I think Twitter should have banned Trump in 2015. Uh, I, I'm really, you know, this this kicking these far right things off the platform have increased year after year after year. This increased more and more and more, and it shows they could have done it initially. They've always had the right to do it. They've always had terms of service. This is one of the things: is all these platforms have always had terms of service, and these people have always violated them. If they would have just enforced the existing terms of service from the beginning, we wouldn't even have this discussion about whether it was right or not to ban people. Um, so on one hand, I'm for aggressively kicking these people off, you know, could there be blowback on us? Sure. And there's been like individual instances of groups, like it's going down, got kicked off Facebook, but I mean, let's just be honest, tens of thousands of their accounts get kicked off and like a sprinkling of a dozen or two of ours do. And maybe it's just cause I don't run one of those accounts, but I think they're just throwing them under the bus to make it look equal. And it's a good trade for us on that level. Now, I mean, I don't want to, that said, that's just from a strict, almost anti-fascist perspective, just like, what do we do to, we'll do anything we can to cut their throats, right? To pull the rug out from under them. 
I'm not advocating you actually slice the throats of Trump. Yeah, um, the position of travel sport is against cutting throats. Uh, just for the clear, <laughs> Mr. SoundCloud moderator. Um, so, so I mean, there is a question when these um, various sort of platforms gain what's an essential monopoly. Um, you know, in the past, it was really Facebook. Now Twitter is coming into this position. And then what it means to um, allow a company, which is a private company, which has its full rights to do this, um, to decide who gets to be on it or not. Um, that's a legitimate question. I don't, I think we're all working this out. Um, you know, on one hand, these things move quite quickly. People call for like nationalization of, of whatever, of Facebook or something. And then two years later, Facebook isn't so important. So these things move in importance that go up and down so quick. Uh, I'm a little dubious about these claims of, of like, you know, we must do this because it's a monopoly. I mean, you know, there's always alternatives to these things, just as, as the fash or, or, you know, where the far right are switching platforms very quickly. So can we, like people will continue to organize, um, especially the internet, you know, gives and takes, whatever you take from it, it will, it will pop up something new somewhere else, you know, or innovate. So I don't think this is like, even such a de facto censoring. Um, I don't think that we should allow people who merely, whose whole point is to spin uh, just pure lies and demonizing groups that are oppressed, we shouldn't allow them a platform. They don't, the whole idea of free speech is that even, even the liberal idea is that people with different views come into a conversation and they make, get to a decision. Just lying about stuff has no place in that. And I'm not saying somebody who once in a while lies or once in a while says something you don't agree with, but people like Alex Jones, whose entire shtick is just to lie, 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 lie. They don't need to be part of any conversation. You know, that doesn't add to the liberal conception of free speech at all. You know, if people just use their platform to call for violence and genocide, that voice has no place in our society and we shouldn't, we just shouldn't allow it. I mean, that's my position on this stuff. I mean, we already don't allow certain voices. We don't allow people are calling for murder. We don't allow people advocating, you know, having sex with children or whatever, you know, and, and like, so there already is an outside. And I think that outside as a society needs to be pulled in. And maybe that's a U.S. thing. In Germany, this is already, you know, largely the case. There's many countries. It's not like it is here where this is pulled in, where you can't do certain things. Um, but the rest of it, I mean, maybe this is a cop out answer, but we're going to have to work that out. I mean, we are trying to work out what this give and take is, where that line is. Um, what, when you have these near monopolies, what are the obligations of, of these platforms? What social media really means? You know, like it's not, it isn't the same thing as old media platforms were. Like in the US, it was always, you could always publish a newspaper or whatever. You could always start your own TV stations. Is social media really the same thing as that? Because it's not exactly, but it has many of the same places. So, I mean, like I said, maybe it's a cop out, but this is a this is something that's going to have to be is being and is going to have to continue to be worked out what that tension is and where the where the um, the place that it lands is where how it finds equilibrium and it's going to take a while, and it may be that the the changes in technology shift the whole thing again and the and the question becomes irrelevant very quickly. I'm I'm kind of a similarly com not conflicted but like in between in a similar place as you. Um, I feel like ultimately the power should be invested in us and our movements that we build to defeat the far right or to diminish the far right in, in its capacity. And so, you know, Twitter, is, having voices taken off Twitter is all well and good, but ultimately it's up to us as, you know, people opposing the far right. There's also another interesting thing which I'm, kind of just struck me of like, how when, when the far right move on to niche and niche platforms, their politics gets more and more extreme or gets niche and niche as it, as it kind of filters out these the kind of the mass into like a more pure form and that's something that maybe uh, maybe uh maybe people don't consider but like a, i'm in a similar place to you uh sam i wanted to ask about the uh what i'm now going to describe because i was interrupted before as the hadeopelagic depths i looked that up it's the very bottom of the sea so the, you get the you know the, the whatever it's called the literal pelagic right where like there's the the, the light passes through and then you get the kind of the rest of them and the mesopelagic and then the abyssopelagic abyssopelagic is the bottom of the normal sea but then you've got these like big trenches like, like abyssopelagic in terms of thinking that's QAnon right like that's that's really the the, the very very sunken depths of strangeness but then there are these cracks in the sea which go down even deeper and what I'm going to just that that is where um, James Mason and Siege 
resides in this kind of hadeoplegic little crack, tiny thing, nowhere near as important as QAnon or the grand scale of, scale of things, but so much more mad. So you, you mentioned Atomwaffen and the base. I don't think the base were explicitly um, influenced by Siege, but Atomwaffen Division very, very, very much were. And they were, as you said, kind of pulled apart by the FBI. Um, they've now resurged, re regurgitated themselves from the hadeoplegic depths as the National Socialist Order um and so on and the base um although we've also pulled apart by the fbi um has now uh returned in the form of a nebulous unnamed project by uh Rinaldo nazaro who was the um uh, the founder of the base and it's kind of uh jupiterian leader uh from his position in uh, st petersburg so you're writing about james mason and siege um what are you writing about it and What's your what's your kind of overall like sense of how this uh, this book functions in uh, the really extreme end of the of the far right now? Well, first I want to say, as somebody with a PhD, I always like when people use words that I don't know and have never even read before. So, um, and it was a better introduction than the other one. So, see, it was good that you got interrupted. Um, so, I there's a there's a there's a lot of so the James Mason book has been very interesting for me. There's two parts of it. One is how the splintering of the American Nazi party, which by that time was called the NSWPP, the National Socialist White People's Party, but we'll just call it the American Nazi Party. How the splintering of it in the 1970s produced um, both the neo-Nazi movement as we know it in the United States really laid, you know, created as a national spread around movement with different tendencies, uh, but also explored the different um, tactical positions that would be adopted and are still used today by neo-Nazis, Mason being in the most radical faction. Um, but one of the things that really stood out, and this has to do with the, the movement, uh, I'm going to actually tie this into the movement to more and more niche platforms, is that when Rockwell created the party officially in 1959, there was a precursor in 58, um, you know, Nazism was a taboo word you know, in the, in the United States in the post-war era to, to, you know, to be a Nazi was almost unthinkable. It was like a cartoonish thing. And he picked that term very intentionally to, he was like in, in advertising and he's a graphic designer and some of the, the early stuff is very well designed to, um, to draw attention to him. He was like, oh, well, this is the worst thing in the world. This is the most evil thing. Well, we're going to become that thing. And I'm going to use that for media attention he even said something like, no one can ignore um, Nazis marching in the streets. He's like, I'm going to take all that reaction to it. I'm going to use this as PR, any good publicity, you know, any publicity is good publicity. And I'm going to use this as a recruiting tool. So in one sense, this was good that in the post-war era, because right, the fascist governments were very openly accepted in the 1930s. There was wide sympathy for them in the United States and Britain and elsewhere. It was good that after the war, they became a taboo thing, that fascism came, became taboo. Everyone agreed, we're going to ground out. This is no longer going to be a legitimate political philosophy that is in competition with others. You know, it's attack the communists, it's attack the capitalists. None of us have any use for it. We're going to grind it into the ground. But in doing so, they did it so effectively that they made it, you know, this, you know, hyper negative thing. And then people could take the hyper negative thing and then use that as an organizing tool themselves. Uh, I don't like to, to cite philosophers, but if you read Foucault and his notion of power, it's exactly like that's supposed to work. Power acts on something and turns it into this thing. And then people take the thing it's turned it into and then make it put it in a positive direction. Right. Um, and so that's what they did. So, Yes, it's good to back to the the um, moving off Twitter or whatever to Parler and Telegram and stuff. Yes, it's good to deplatform people, but it drives them into more niche things, and then the niche things they can then get hardened and expand back out. Um, the moral of this story is like um, fascists in the far right are speaking to some need and concern in society, and unless you get that need and concern taken care of in some way, you're not going to be able to get rid of these movements. You can marginalize these movements. You can keep them, you know, boxed in, but they're they're there because they're um, appealing to something that people feel. And unless you can get rid of that feeling, the movements aren't going to go away. You know, this is like the left says ideas are bulletproof. You know, people have tried. You know, these juntas in Latin America tried to kill all the communists by you know murdering them, and it didn't work. You know, it's the same thing. We can't. We can marginalize some of these movements, but we can't make them go away. They're there for a reason. Um, they're, they're, they're filling some cultural, social, and political need. 
Um, so yeah, that's the uh, that's the, how the story of James Mason and the um, and the I guess of George Lincoln Rockwell and and a parlor and telegram fit together. And, um, and beyond that, you know, the matrix, matrix and, and wire and right, all these kind of like super yeah, yeah, all, the, all the little, you know, as they hop from these thing to these yeah. thing. But yeah, I mean, it is a problem that we're going to see, you know, once you margin, once people turn into a mass movement, they tend to moderate their politics a little bit. I've seen that in the radical left. It's definitely happened with the anti-globalization movement and stuff. Anarchists who are driving it got into this and then you water it down because you're trying to appeal to more and more people. And um, once you retreat, things tend to get more driven by the ideological hardcore. The same thing is going to happen to them. But yeah, well, what do you do? Yeah. I mean, it's a question. What do you do? I mean, I think it's a really interesting account you gave, right? Because in part, it brings us back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the podcast, which was, and you always articulated it in terms of a kind of a flip. So although people, I think, generally tend to assume that the smaller the group are, the more specialist attention it requires, right? Like, so kind of minuscule, really extreme neo-Nazi stuff like the base and atom often, maybe not so much the base, but atom often, definitely, um, seem like this just kind of minuscule, like, gang, right? And, like, how was a movement, like a mass movement, going to, like, affect or engage with this this gang at all? And ultimately, I don't think they really did. And, you know, it took the FBI to um, to really kind of take that that group apart perhaps anti-fascists were um, involved in various like uh, parts of that, not as the FBI, but they kind of, they contributed to it. But I still, I still, it seems, it seemed, and does seem to me still that the anti-fascists in the movement uh, uh, of the left and so on don't have ways of engaging with these, um, these kind of almost like maniacal or kind of fanatical um, uh, fascists. And that's, that's a big problem. But the way you told the story there of like how to engage with these people actually flips it around, right? So it says, and it's not just this kind of like tiny hardened niche of like, you know, kind of 25 really dangerous people, but actually it does speak to a much more broad general need. And I think that's actually quite a hopeful thing for thinking about in terms of um, mass movement anti-fascism. So even, the, the, even though the symptoms express themselves as these tiny hardened cliques of um, yeah, as I say, kind of fanatical neo-Nazis, um, there's still a way of addressing the conditions under which those kind of cliques or those kind of like hardened um, niches are, are formed, which is through a much broader, uh, much more polyphonous, much more highly um, uh, socially um, open anti-fascist movement as well. I think we need to, one of the things that I think we have to, come to maybe terms with or recognize is that you know we may never get rid of groups like neo-nazis by what other whatever name you know there's always going to be people who are disenchanted with the society and who are going to express the disenchantment in a radical conservatism you know whether it's nazi whether it's you know i always think of this guy the, the bloody baron baron of von ungren who was a white general who went to um uh, Mongolia during the civil war and, and um, became an alliance with the Mongolian Buddhists uh, to create this sort of messianic far right, but not Nazi, right? But far right, anti-communist, anti-Chinese uh, movement. So you can have a kind of radical reactionary, con revolutionary conservatism that is not necessarily neo-Nazi. And there may always be people like that as long as, at least as long as we have Western political conceptions, right? Like, I mean, that just that might be something that we're stuck with, and it's just something that we have to sort of constantly look over and 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 ensure that its ideas don't start to ripple out in the larger society. This has been a really good interview. Um, <laughs> Spencer, you've been a, a really good guest. <laughs> um, where can people find you if they want to see more of your work? Um, what's the best place to find you? Uh, I have a webpage at spencersunshine.com. The uh, 40 Ways Guide is available there for free as text and as printable PDFs. Please print them out. Um, I'm active mostly on Twitter, Transform67889. Got a meme page on Instagram for fun. Uh, I got a Facebook if you still do the Book of Face. And um, I have a Patreon if you'd like to support my work. I do it totally independently. Organizations don't like me. Academics keep me at an arm's length. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, if you've liked what you've heard and you like the things I'm doing, please support me on Patreon. And that, that concludes our moment of capitalism. It's always necessary. Thank you so much for coming, Spencer. Um, yeah, thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, 
we'll kind of uh, meet in person at some point, um, you know, in the kind of the coming years when COVID is over and when fascism has been conclusively uh, destroyed, despite your uh, kind of pessimism about that, that possibility. It's been great being on the show. And I do, I, I was, uh, did a couple talks in London, right? Um, the days after Trump was elected. And I do hope whenever COVID permits that I will be back. Definitely. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. That was really fun. Yeah, that was, that was super good, actually. Hello, and welcome to We Will Remember Freedom, a monthly podcast of anarchist fiction. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. Hello, and welcome to the jingle for both of my podcasts. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. You can find my podcasts wherever you get your podcasts or get them from the Channel Zero Network. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can help support the podcast on Patreon. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. So that's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what and you can sign up for as little as $2 a month. Thanks a lot and I will see you very soon. 12 rules for what?